listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Andy Moore. On today's episode, we're excited to be in conversation with Dr. Rosemary Allen. Dr. Allen will be a keynote at this year's virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium. The theme for this year's symposium is Cultivating Community Connections and is coming up later this month, September 29th through October 1st. You can register to attend the event at www.zerosymposium.org. We'd like to thank our two of our sponsors, Ascension St. John and the Public Health Institute of Oklahoma, for their generous support of this year's symposium. Dr. Rosemary Allen has been a leader in early childhood education for nearly 40 years, and her life's work has focused on ensuring children have access to high-quality early childhood programs that are developmentally and culturally appropriate. As a national expert on implicit bias and culturally responsive practices, Rosemary has been a respected voice on equitable youth and family-focused community support and response throughout the pandemic. We've asked Cynthia Mooney, Children's Behavioral Health Community Coordinator for the Mental Health Association Oklahoma, and a board member of the Oklahoma Association of Infant Mental Health to interview Dr. Allen. Let's hear their conversation. The Mental Health Download starts now. morning, Dr. Allen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you. Of course. So we're entering our 18th month, uh, plus maybe a couple, a little bit longer as well, um, of the COVID-19 pandemic. What impacts have you seen in your work with youth and families? Oh, so many. I think... March, I'm going to say last year, but it feels like it's been longer than that, that um, March, when this pandemic started, our entire world shifted. And it was so unexpected. And also, it went on much longer than we were told it would. If you remember, we were to hunker down for two weeks, then a month. And we, we began to re, um, reassign, reorganize, um, look at our calendars and, and make shifts. And we thought surely in a year, things would be back to normal. But what I've seen more than anything, especially when it comes to children, family, youth, and communities, is this monumental collective resilience and healing. I believe that we have learned to go with the flow, to roll with it, to plan and be flexible, and to expect the unexpected, yet show up every day as our best selves. And when we can't, we lift each other up until we can. I think that resiliency is such a beautiful piece of all of this, because I think you're right, whether it be adults or children, we've had to learn how to uh, tap into that in a way that we never have in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, I know for early childhood, especially when we're talking about our youngest children, um, consistency routine is so important. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the pieces do you think that that we as adults, as community members can do to support that for, for young people? 
I think it's really important first is to recognize that children grow, learn, and develop in whatever environment they're in. And I believe we've made some, um, some negative associations with children being at home and assuming there, there are no, there's no routine. You know, in early childhood, we always say that children, that, that our parents are the first, best, and most consistent teacher of young children, but yet we've been in this panic as early childhood educators that things are going terribly wrong since they're not under our control. The most important thing we can do is trust the family and to trust the environment. Because if children are with their first, best, and most consistent teacher, then they are in the best environment to learn. And we have to understand that most families have a routine. And although things happen, they plan to go to school one week and before you know it, there's an outbreak and things have to shift, that those families are shifting and the children are shifting. And while we have to be flexible, there's still some kind of routine in place. So I would say trust the families and also trust ourselves as the educators. You know, to be flexible, some of us are doing the online learning that we thought we could never do with early childhood, and it's working really well. I think we've tapped into strengths that we didn't know we had and creative ways to really engage, even though we're not face-to-face. -face. So providing that routine ourselves as educators, working with families to find out what that routine is at home, and together creating a routine that works well for children. Thank you. It sounds like there have been, um, in spite of a lot of the scary negative things that have, have happened through the pandemic, there have also been some positive lessons learned. Um, how has that differed regarding um, you know, some of those lessons learned, whether it's within urban and rural communities? Have some of those positives been maybe different for different communities from your experience? Well, absolutely. I think one of the things that this pandemic has revealed to us were the inequities that we already knew were there, but they really became more highlighted. We make assumptions that um, every family and community has access to the same resources and opportunities. And we found that not to be true at all, that there are families who live in rural communities who don't have the same access to the internet or speed, um, we have some families even living in more urban and suburban areas who may have access to internet but not be able to afford it. We find that there are some families who have multiple children who are sharing a computer, or if not, everyone's trying to be on the internet at the same time. Um, we made assumptions that most families can work from home and help to oversee their children's education while at home, where some of our most marginalized communities, the families were essential workers and, and, and had to go to work. And the children didn't have the supports that other families had. But what I love about what happened is that we really revealed and unveiled these inequities and everyone stood up. Everyone took notice to say, we have to create access for all children to be able to thrive during this time. I think that for me as a parent, part of that uh, unveiling was that I was given some time 
to actually focus on some of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was a lot going on, but to some extent things slowed down a little bit, at least for our family, it did. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering as we're sort of thinking about how we move forward, um, what are some of the things that various systems that are, that are government or schools or faith communities, businesses, uh, mental health, healthcare, how, how do we support each other and support youth and families to address some of these gaps that in inequities that we've seen? And I think the first is to provide services that are free of bias and free of judgment. Um, we cannot assume because we have it, everyone has it or should have it. Um, for instance, there were some archaic rules put in place um, that were very hard for young people to follow, even mandating that the entire time you're in school, your camera is on. Um, when we turn our cameras on, we're inviting people into our homes. Right now, you're a guest in my home, where I live, where I teach, where I learn, sleep, and eat, where I love, where I care for my children and my pets. And we have to remember that we're guests. And, and some offices are shared with breastfeeding moms. Some offices are shared with other children who are learning. Some, some, some people just have a, 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 a value of privacy where I don't really want you in my home. And then there were rules like, you must have your shoes on at all times while in online learning. Not only is that just a really bad idea, but it's culturally irresponsible. Um, we do not wear shoes in our home. We don't, we, we, we wear shoes at the, we take them off at the door. And for some people, for us, us is what we prefer, but for some, that's a religious custom, especially for people who are Muslims, who pray with their face to the ground. And for you now to, to mandate that children go against their religious and cultural customs because you have this certain um, value about what school should look like. And then it even became dangerous for other children. Um, you probably heard of some of the cases where the police were called, especially for um, black boys. We thought finally we're safe from disproportionate suspension rates of black children, especially black boys. But then we found that they were being suspended from online learning. And also there was a Nerf gun in the background of a little boy's room. He knew it shouldn't be there. He moved it. The teacher called the police. They showed up at his home, you know, those types of situations. So I think first we have to provide services without judgment and we have to collaborate with families because not only are we a guest in their homes during this online learning, but we often forget that we are the guests at their schools because our teacher workforce is 80% white women and most of them do not live in the community where they teach, but they come in and take ownership of the school. These, this is my school, my classroom, my rules. And we fail to remember that you're walking into a community, into a neighborhood that's made up of community members. And in those community members are families and fictive kinships and supports. And so many times you come in and, and you don't conduct an asset mapping type situation where you're finding out who the leaders are, who you need to know. Do you know who the pastor is, who own, the person who owns the barbershop, the grocer who knows everything, 
the school bus driver who knows where these children lives and their needs, wants, and expectations. So I think those types of services, first is to provide services without judgment. Second is to, is to really connect with the community and the community leaders. And those leaders may look different from who you think leaders are. For instance, I'm here in Denver, Colorado, and one of the greatest le leaders in the black community is Brother Jeff. And he's a Muslim who goes to church, to the biggest black church every Sunday. And he runs a cultural center. And one of the ways that we increased vaccinations in the black community was to have them administered at the cultural center. Another one is Brother Theo, who runs the barbershop. Vaccinations were administered at the barbershop. He has a bookcase where children can come and take any book they want. They read it in the chair and they get to take it with them. So that kind of asset mapping of the community. And then most importantly is to make sure that children and families are seen, honored and valued for who they are and not who you expect them to be through your own cultural lens. That sounds like um, a lot of cultural humility for uh, the entire community and the recognition of the necessity of that. Um, I know for me during this time, uh, I've tried to be very aware of my privileges, of the things that, that were unique to my family, things that maybe were a hardship for others, but maybe not so much for myself. And as we are moving forward now, um, and I say moving forward, I feel like with the resurgence of, of the new variants, I think that it feels like we're stuck a little bit. But as we are doing that, what do you think the most effective way is then um, to, to create those connections? The connections that are needed for that support. You had mentioned uh, keep putting families uh, at the forefront of a lot of that, putting the community there. What what are we what do we do? What is that first step? And I, I think really again going back to the community and finding out what their needs are. I love that you just mentioned cultural humility, and I'd like to define cultural humility as the practice of not knowing because we're professionals and we know a lot. We know a lot of things and rarely do we focus on what we don't know, but we have to engage in this quest for learning more about the communities that we serve. You know, because we get caught up in our own biases. And I have to admit, I have a huge bias against people who do not feel they need to be vaccinated. And that's a bias for me. And in order for me to work through that, I've opened myself up to have conversations with people who feel that way and why they feel that way. Because as strongly as I feel about getting vaccinated, there are people who feel just as strongly about not being vaccinated. And in having conversations with them is to find that happy medium. You know, because you have a, every right, every right to say what goes into your body and I have every right to live. So how do we meet? And to begin to have those, those very respectful conversations that are grounded in cultural humility without judgment. But I have to tell you, it takes a lot to let go. It takes a lot to engage in this conversation that I feel so strongly about and to let go of what I believe to be perfect and right 
and best and listen with an open heart and open mind to someone who feels differently, even about their fears. Um, in the beginning, there was a great fear in the African-American community about the vaccine. And a lot of people thought it was built on ignorance. If you remember, we were the face of not getting vaccinated, African-Americans, the black and brown communities. But until we began to talk about the complicated relationship between the black community and medicine, and how medicine has been an enemy in many ways to the black community, people didn't understand the hesitance for the vaccine. And it took me personally a long time. It's so funny, I'm so pro-vaccine, but I told my husband because my husband and children were like, as soon as it comes, I'm getting it. And I'm like, mm, no, I remember the Tuskegee experiment. I remember what happened to Henrietta Lacks. I remember how black women's bodies were used for experimentation for the OGBY, OBGYN field. But then I began to compare that knowledge with what I knew about COVID, that COVID kills. And not only for people who get it, for, but for people who carry it. And then I had to re-educate myself and make that very difficult decision. And now I'm able to listen more freely and openly to people whose views are different from mine. So I think starting with the community, hearing what their needs are, hearing what their fears are, asking them what they need. And we saw that really work again here in Denver, asking the community, what do you need? What will help you to overcome this type of distrust of the vaccine? And they said, when our community is uplifted and our community leaders are involved, then we'll listen. And that's what happened. So I think that when our field, early uh, mental health cons consultants, early childhood professionals, everyone who's touching the lives of children and families really begin to listen to children and families. And then we negotiate space and we negotiate services and what that could look like is where we're gonna make the biggest difference. Uh, when I used to teach uh, early childhood education, one of the things that we would say amongst ourselves is it's all about relationships. Um, you know, whether that be the relationship with the child as a teacher or with the family or families with their own children um, and us as teachers within our community. Uh, I think that it it definitely is where we have to start with all of that. Mm -hmm. um, how how do you see that connecting to the larger system then? You know, it's really interesting you say that because the, the relationship, of course, it starts between those people, that, that diet is where that relationship starts. Um, when I was going through my doc program, my son had recently graduated high school and I set up a presentation for him um, through the eyes of a black of black youth. And um, he put himself at the front of a room and allowed all of these doc students, many of them educators, to ask any questions, any questions they, they had, um, where they could get an authentic answer from a black male who was about 17 years old. And um, he talked about how lost he felt in high school, how invisible he felt, even though he was one of the most popular kids there. Um, he was a poet and he talked about how he was on stage and he delivered this poem and the entire audience chanted, 
Clarence, Clarence, Clarence. And he left the stage, went in his car and cried because he'd never felt more alone. Then he talked about this one teacher who made a difference, the one teacher that made a difference. And one of the doc students said, can you tell us what he did? What did the teacher do if you tell us so we'll know how to make a difference for other children? And even now it makes me wanna to cry to say that he said, he saw me, he spoke to me and he asked me how I was doing. And he waited for me to answer. And the next time he saw me, he remembered what my answer was. And we just developed a relationship. Doesn't every child deserve to be seen? To say, for someone to say hello and how are you? So when we start with that basic relationship, then we make sure that it emanates throughout every relationship. So you have that relationship with the child and then you develop that relationship with the family. You see, because my son had, he was sick during that time and the teacher saw him and then that teacher called me. You know, I had a talk with Clarence today and he told me that he was in pain, but I saw that he was able to push through, what can I do? So that started with, now it went from my son to our family. And because of that, I shared that with my community and my networks. So that's what we do. We start with that basic relationship of seeing, honoring, and valuing each child. Take that to each family and then take that to every community. And that's how we begin to change things. That was a beautiful moment of vulnerability that I think requires uh, some real trust. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'll tell you, people know when you care about them. You know, we say that with children all the time, but that's so true with adults. You know people who like you, you know people who care about you, you know people who are vested in your success. Families know that. Because unless you develop that authentic relationship, it's not going to happen. And you can ask people all day, well, how are you really? And I don't trust that you care enough for me to share that with you. You know, but this teacher for my son, he, he, he somehow built that trust, you know. And I remember when my son, he, he says, no, Clarence, I don't want to know, like, how are you? I want to know, how are you? And how are you how are you doing here you know and they still have an amazing relationship to this day and my son is 27 years old i it sounds um it sounds so easy but because i think we all long for those types of connections but ultimately uh i think we're all a little scared to take that risk sometimes mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to say, oh, how are you today? When you're passing somebody on the street, it's harder to actually wait for that answer. Yes. And I think um, I think that that then ripples into that taking that time and thinking through it uh, within bigger relationships when you're, you know, that might not be so personal, but, you know, community wide relationships, taking the time to hear. 
and especially in a community that is culturally, linguistically different from you, who's where your cultural lens is not the same, you know, and, and it's awkward. I've had white teachers say, how do I get the black community to really trust me? And it's by being authentic, you know, and it's by saying to some families at your first open house, I am a white teacher teaching in a black community and I am just learning. I mean, you have to be vulnerable to say that. I, I had that moment when I was one of the only English speaking, I was the director of an entire program and 90% of my families were Spanish speaking. And I speak maybe 20% Spanish. I can understand maybe 30%. And I thought, I can't sit here and pretend like I'm, I'm, I'm a Spanish speaker or I know. And my first meeting was, I don't know Spanish. And that concerns me because I want to be able to communicate with you and build relationships with you. And I'm, I, I don't know how to do that but I want you to know that I am so willing to learn. And I let them know that I had enrolled in some conversational Spanish classes. And um, you know, the open house is usually a couple of weeks after school starts. And I even told them that your children are teaching me Spanish. Now they're teaching me directives, like Sierra La Puerta, close the door, siéntate, ahorita, sit down right now. I mean, they're giving me all the teacher words, <laughs> but it was so um, heartwarming to them just to know that I was interested in learning, to be able to be vulnerable and say, I don't know. And um, just building those relationships, even though there was a language barrier. And it was beautiful for me because I learned so many different ways of communicating, you know, through props and graphics and um, translators when I could, and just practicing my Spanish and writing down a bunch of things in Spanish that I, questions I wanted to ask and tripping all over the words and me and the families laughing about it because one mispronunciation could just change the whole tone of a word, but it was just being able to be vulnerable and saying that and to be able to ask questions. You know, I didn't know what the day of the dead means. I did some research, but even though I, I, I knew intellectually it was so, felt so deeply with my families and I wanted to know more beyond the books. And one family gave um, and extended an invitation to come to the home to see the celebrations. And that let me know too, that I was, you're an outsider until the community says you're not. But once okay. I, was be, I was invited to homes, then I knew I was slowly becoming an insider, which made all the difference. And so the other, um, advice I would I would have is to be, become be get get comfortable in that outsider space and to know that you're an outsider and stay there until you earn the trust of the community and slowly become an insider in that space I think it's the difference between knowing the definition of something and knowing what it means to someone yes um. And that's so personal and individual. It really is. That's a very good point. Knowing something, but knowing what it means to someone else. Yes. When I think about that, um, I think, at, like, I'm a community coordinator, so I, I pull groups together to work 
together, cultivating community connections. Uh, but ultimately, I think on some level, it starts with us as individuals. Mm -hmm. it, it really does. You know, I, I made a huge mistake early in my career. Um, I lived in an African-American community. In California, their communities are very segregated. People don't know this. And even within the segregation between races, you're segregated by class. So I came from a middle-class African-American community, and then I began to work in a lower class where some of the um, subsidized housing, we called them projects back then. And I made the mistake of thinking because I'm black and I'm going to work in this black community, I'm automatically an insider. And I was, talk about, mistaken, I was, it was a rude awakening from the members of that community. They didn't just come out right and say, you're not one of us, but they let me know very clearly that I was an outsider. You know, um, I didn't speak the same way. Some of my values were different. Um, one of the ladies says, um, oh, you don't know how we do it yet, but you'll learn. And it's like, wow. And it took me a minute to step back and really learn. And I don't know if you've heard this um, <laughs> the, the, the saying that you can't come to the family barbecue. In the family, you're not in until you're invited to the barbecue. And if you're excluded from the barbecue, you're really excluded, excluded from the community. So when someone does something in the uh, high profile person in the, you know, in the outside of the community or wherever, they say, oh boy, they're not coming to the barbecue, you know, that kind of thing. So when I was finally invited to the barbecue, <laughs> like, and it was two years in that it took for me to really earn the trust of my own people in the community. But so I, I would say that it takes a while and your job, you probably see that a lot that we think we're insiders because we share a language or because we share a race or because we share a religion, but there's so much diversity within all of those groups that you really have to practice that cultural humility and that, that practice of not knowing to really understand how to build those connections. I think that uh, that takes a lot more time than sometimes we give it. Mm -hmm a lot more time, um, a lot of forgiving of yourself and others, you know, a, a lot of reassessing what you thought you knew and, and how you can do it. And um, it takes a lot because we're professionals. <laughs> and we know a lot. And we believe we know what's best for children. It's something so simple as potty training. I learned a lesson maybe 15 years ago while I was running a lab school and I had a large population of women from India who potty trained their babies as infants. And, and I remember with my cockiness, it's like, well, the baby's not potty trained, the parents are potty trained. You know, with all of this judgment, until I really stopped and listened, tell me how, tell me why, tell me how we could implement this. And I was so proud that after about a year of really learning and building those relationships, I helped to get the rules changed here in Colorado. We had a rule that said no efforts to potty train a child will take place before the age of 18 months. 
And that was a licensing rule. And these women taught me so much that I was um, able to help to get that rule changed and have it based on cultural considerations. There is a lot of humility uh, in having to look back at at some of the judgment calls or or judgment that we have had regarding different things as we learn more about life. We have more life experiences. Uh, I have several families that I know when I first started teaching, I probably owe a major apology for what for assumptions I made, for thoughts that I had, because I just knew. I mean, I had read the book, I knew. <laughs> And not only just through experience did I grow, I hope, but uh, becoming a parent myself was probably the most humbling experience. So, oh my gosh, don't we learn through that? Oh my, (laughs) every day. I taught three year olds, and I remember standing at the door. Um, you know they're able to walk. They have two feet. Can I tell you how many times I've had to throw my three-year-old over my shoulder just to get him through the door? (laughs) I had no idea what parents were dealing with. My little 21-year-old know-it-all self talking about self-help skills. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, and now I have have a 17 and a 25-year-old that regularly is still teaching me about all of the things I don't know. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And if only we can humble ourselves and practice that humility. Yes. You know, my, my daughter is a therapist and and um, she tells me regularly and sometimes I just can't stand it when I'm trying to give advice or whatever. She goes, that's not helpful. <laughs> that's her thing. <laughs> like, OK, thank you so much. I know you're trying to be helpful, but that's not it. All right, well, let me just be quiet here and listen so you can tell me how I can be helpful. Yes. But, and I don't know about you, but I use those same skills when I'm sitting in a room full of community partners. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, pause that statement, that thought I just had. I need to really just stop and listen for a minute. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, when, when you think about it, when we're doing all the talking, then we are not learning at all. And I remember I, I was, I'm, I'm a college professor, so I'm used to lecturing. And I went through this training for facilitators. Talk about discomfort from lecturing to really facilitating. And there's a saying, the answer is in the room. If only you stop and listen for it. And that's what I learned is to stop and listen and trust the community that the answer is there. You know, and all I needed to do was to facilitate the conversation so that we can get there. And that was a truly a learning experience, but it required me to humble myself, to step out of that professional lecturing know-it-all role and to really trust that the answer was really in that room. And sometimes in the silence that we don't allow for. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We like to fill up that silence, don't we? Yeah. Are there any other thoughts that you would like to leave us with? Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. But um, any other thoughts regarding uh, how we can pull community together, things that you want to touch on at the conference? I just want to say that as we're 
reopening and closing and trying to figure this thing out. I want us to really honor the role of families. You know, people right now are talking about learning loss, learning loss, and then they're clothing it in this, um, this branding of equity. I want us to honor families that if children have been with their first, best, and most consistent teacher, we have to honor what they're learning there. And instead of focusing what has been lost, any learning that's been lost, let's focus on what's been gained. Let's work with the family so that we can say, tell me over this past year how you motivated, encouraged, and inspired your child. Tell me what you learned about what their needs are. Tell me what their snack time looks like. For my children, they needed a snack every two hours or they were going to melt down. Tell me what triggered anxiety for them. Tell me what breaks should look like. And if we can really frame this in, in, in learning games so that the parents, community, and teachers can all work together, I think we will see a huge difference in how we approach this school year. I love that idea. Thank you, Dr. Allen, so much for your time today. This has been fantastic, and I cannot wait to hear your keynote speech. Thank you, and I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Mental Health Download Podcast from the Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. Our guest today was Dr. Rosemary Allen, and the interviewer was Cynthia Mooney, Children's Behavioral Health Community Coordinator for Mental Health Association, Oklahoma, and board member of the Oklahoma Association of Infant Mental Health. Please remember, you can register for the upcoming Zero Symposium at zerosymposium.org.